welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 19. Uh, this episode we thought we'd cover something we haven't really touched on up to this point. Essentially tech death. We're going to do um, something that should be kind of interesting of charting some bands that were really instrumental in the start of it. Going through to look at a band who's kind of reunited and been very instrumental in the newer age of it. And then finally finishing with basically like the new blood in the tech death scene. Um, so... The early stuff might be a bit interesting, and I'd definitely be up for a debate of whether this truly counts as tech death, but, you know, <laughs> genre arguments can get out of hand. So the band we thought we'd start with are the relatively short-lived Atheist. This is, I think, a Florida-based band who um, formed in 1984 as Oblivion, then changed the name to Ravage, then changed the name to Atheist in 1988, because <laughs> they couldn't seem to settle on a name, and we're going to cover the second of their four albums, and probably, like, the... I know, I think regard as the classic of the lot mm. is um, 1991's Unquestionable Presence. This was recorded on Active Records, not a label I'm particularly familiar no. with. So, like, as a kind of point in time, 1991, death metal scene has well and truly got going. Um, Atheists have already kind of cemented their place in it with their standout, just very, very weird first album. And so, yeah... They're kind of lumped in with the death metal bands, but as we'll probably get into, don't really ever fit with that yeah, at all. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so probably best with Atheist to give a bit of history up to this point before we get into sort of the meat of this album. So, Kelly Schaefer, their singer slash guitarist, um, has stated their aim was com- combining the styles of, say, Rush, Slayer and Merciful Fate. Which I don't, might just be a silly interview quote, but there's something in that. Like their sound is this kind of the kind of mad hyper technicality you get of some of the what like middle to early Rush. Yeah, like, some of that sort of progressive rock technical guitar playing and drumming and bass, like and all sort of very audible, and you can hear everything mm. that's going on. Very sort of in depth writing, and then at the same time you have the intensity of like sort of early death sort of plugged into that too yeah like like you've got the kind of evil riffing like mm. still but because of the technicality it doesn't have any of the kind of even repeating structures of a lot of um a lot of early death metal like yeah yeah you look at say death celebrity it's a very formulaic album it's a lot of verse chorus middle eight kind of songs atheists don't go in for that they also don't really go in for any of like the pounding double bass or particularly heavy sounding rhythm section yeah that, i mean that's one of the things i think i'll particularly note about this album when we get onto it is like the double bass playing that almost doesn't exist like you hear it every now and then but it's quite ephemeral and only comes up sometimes which is really weird in sort of your burgeoning death metal scene where double bass just provides this power to all of death metal yeah yeah so the band um at before the say before this album then we'll get into this album was made up of uh kelly schaefer guitar and vocals rand berkeley on guitar uh, Steve Flynn on drums and uh, oh God, why have I forgotten his name? Uh, Roger Pattinson on bass and the the songs are essentially constructed by Roger writing these bizarre, hyper complex, like just weird collections of little parts of melody. Always like yeah, nearly always super technical, and then Steve Flynn adding this equally mad, impossible to follow rhythm section. Then Kelly and Rand seem to try and wrestle this back into a normal song by adding riffs over the top of yeah. this uh, 
weird interlocking rhythm section. I don't know, it's, it's, it's a weird way to write music like this, I mm. think, but it certainly ends up with a really, really unique sound. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, they released the first album, which was piece of time, about two years before uh, Unquestionable Presence. It's a really interesting album, a bit more intense than this, a bit of a rougher production. It's, it definitely left its mark on the scene, like... We hadn't heard bass playing like this or mm, drumming like mm. this on a death metal album up to this point. But also, it was very clear they were still evolving as songwriters, and I don't think they were as happy with it as as they could have been. So in the build-up to recording this album, really unfortunately, um, they had a tour, they had a bus crash on tour, and yeah, Roger was thrown from the van and tragically died on the way to hospital. Like at like at think age twenty two and mm. he was this ludicrous talent on the scene. Like and it, I don't think it's sort of going too far to say well and truly the death metal Cliff Burton. Yeah. This yeah. guy added something to a band that no one else could have done and his writing has never been mimicked since. And also just incredible sage personality. There's some old videos you can catch of him playing with a band and he was just such an intense presence and such a crazy good player. Yeah, a massive loss for the scene. But fortunately, he had recorded, he had like written a lot of his parts, and as I was previously saying, the band wrote by building off of his parts. Yeah. So they were able to get a replacement guy in, and uh, a very short notice, they managed to um, invite Tony Choi, uh, currently of Cynic, later of Pestilence, into the lineup, and he seemed to learn the stuff super quick, and that brings us to Unquestionable Presence. Yeah, so I mean, just like sort of, you can hear from the very beginning that this is all constructed around the bass guitar. When the first bit of Mother Man, which, if you're familiar with Atheist, will be the song that you know, comes in. I think you broke down the time signatures of this <laughs> intro bit, which is insane. Yeah, so to give give an idea, it's it's like a, a song that is intro by the bass, and for each bar, it goes five four three four eleven eight ten eight eleven eight ten eight four four. That is how this <laughs> song starts. And Roger had written this song beforehand, and he just written that on the bass, and that just had occurred to him. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing that that sort of set of time signatures just naturally occurs when pretty much everyone else just instinctively writes in four four. And more than anything, it's actually quite a memorable melody. It's, yeah, it really is. Like I can sort of hum it in my head right now. It's the amazing sort of talent of making something that's odd and takes lots of weird sort of maybe musical risks but still manages to sound really interesting and catchy oh yeah yeah so like everything's been upped on this album like the songwriting's tighter it's more complex um mm. production everything's sounding better so both these albums because they're american death metal bands have scott burns producing mixing recording all the uh all that stuff and he just seems to have dealt with the sound a bit better mm. this time the first album had a tendency for certain things to get buried. A lot of the bass dropped quite low in the mix. Tony Joy is front and centre on this album. And Steve Flynn as well, the drummer. Like, you get these huge fills really cut through when they're meant to. If you look at like a track like Retribution, my god, like... That that drum set of drum fills before the the solo, like yeah, yeah, and the drums on this are really interesting because sort of like the music in general, it sort of jumps all over the place. And as I was saying earlier, like there's not a huge amount of double bass in it. You do hear it at times, but it's not ever present as it is in a lot of death metal, sort of giving this pounding edge. And it sort of it does give it that almost like rush like and you know it extends just 
completely jazz-like feel to it. Mm. It's never continually pounding you. It's sort of jumping all over the place. And yet, I think the genius of this album is it manages to do that and jump between time signatures and weird riffs and like the drums jump all over the place, as does the bass and the guitar, in a way which feels earned and natural for each song. It always works when they shift this. It never feels like they're doing it just to confuse you. It always feels like that actually helps the song. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of that will come back to the way that it was written by Roger in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no way around it. Like, this is tech death in the kind of self-indulgent sense. Mm. This is this is music very built around... Like, they are trying to show off their technicality. The band were in a constant state of one-upmanship with who could write the fancier <laughs> bits. Uh, so, like, uh, a lot of their recording sessions were Kelly and Rand arguing infinitely, and uh, Steve was definitely the peacemaker in this, this mm. kind of constant battle of wills. Like, But it does come out to catchy, memorable songs. This yeah, doesn't yeah. have... So you compare them to something like a modern band like Brain Drill, which just... Mm. Brain Drill are kind of fun in their own way, but that just sounds like a technical exercise. This yeah, kind of yeah. doesn't have this, and I'm not quite sure why. There's something about the melodies that are put together and the riffs that are put together which sounds like a song as opposed to just... I mean, it's an incredibly technical song and maybe a song that's proving your technicality, but I don't know, every song on this still works for me as yeah, a sort yeah. of complete thing by itself. Because a lot of the song structures are completely crazy in that. Like, mm. They might have something recognisable as a chorus, but say you take something like Mother Man, and I think it's got a set of three riffs that repeat twice, then four different sections up to the ending. It's, mm, it's something mm. like that. And so you've got no real repeating parts, but yet something draws the listener in and keeps you very... I find this stuff incredibly memorable. Yeah, there's something almost, like, it's almost fluid about how it changes. It feels perfectly natural when it does shift. Um and I, yeah, I think this just like goes to show the amazing sort of musical chemistry that they had and the incredible writing that these weird technical exercises managed to flow into each other in a way that just works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, on top of that, so we've gone a lot about the rhythm section, but the two guitarists get some fucking fantastic solos mm, in for this mm. album. So Retribution has got a seriously memorable one in Fraud and Essence, another really kind of beautiful piece of guitaring. But always, they have these great solos which are structured over just ever-changing riffs. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> But the solo sort of, like, has its own path that it forges through the sort of chaos that is an atheist song. Uh, yeah, some, like, really catchy and melodic stuff in these solos, mm. as well as incredibly technical playing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, personally, this is an album I still rate, like, as one of my absolute favourite mm. super technical albums. Like, it's one of my all-time favourite albums. I think if you've got any interest in this kind of scene of early technicality like really technicality driven music this is one of the top ones yeah like, um and it'll do weird things as well like sort of you'll have this breakneck pace going on and then it will just stop and there'll be this slow jazz interlude segment and then like you know it's sort of like this you know uh, groovy jazz ride symbol and it will build up into this like punishing complex guitar riff out of nowhere and yet it works yeah, yeah. Like, and the, the influence of jazz on this can't be understated enough, like, mm. like overstated enough. So it, it's really, like, all over the place. Like, nothing nothing makes sense in a usual rock manner. <laughs> and I think this is what so pulled this apart from its peers. I can't yeah. think of an album that quite sounds like this that was released in this time period. Mm. There's mm. a lot that follow it that get on board, say, you look at Pestilence's Spheres, has a lot in common with this. Also, bass player in common. But, um... Yeah. 
Yeah, before this point, you just don't get this. But it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting looking at sort of the time it was recorded. So this was uh, released in August 91, and it was recorded at the same, so Morrisound Studios, the same mm. place um, which not only Death's Human was recorded, was released a couple of months later, but also Cynic's Focus, which we'll be talking about in a bit. So there was this amazing hive of activity in this one place. I mean, at this point, sort of, deaf were... This is just pre-human. So deaf aren't the super progressive sort of entity that they became much mm. later in their career. They're certainly building in that direction, but they're not there yet. Cynic was still in their sort of demo years. Yeah. And there was, like, no one around who did this thing that Atheist did. Yeah, yeah. And, and did it with such, like, a level where this album, every single song is worth it. Like, there's not really any fat on this album. You know, almost having perfected this thing before anyone else has really started doing it. Yeah, completely. Um, I think the the other kind of oddity of this album uh, is Kelly's vocals. Mm. He, I don't know, how would you describe this vocal style? I think they vary quite a lot. It's almost like a sort of weird variation on some of the sort of mid-high, later era deaf vocals. Mm. But then there's bits where it's sort of like half clean as well. Yeah. And there's this variation in it, which is kind of interesting. And it sort of jumps about a little bit like the music does. And, and the fact he can maintain doing vocals while singing. Because like, there's yeah. always a running yeah. joke with um, like prior and big influence on this band, uh, band Watchtower. That their vocalist, uh, was it Screaming in 9-11? Like, <laughs> like just... The guy has to somehow try and make vocal melody sense of this yeah. total tangled mess of music, which is kind of incredible. Yeah, yeah, like it's it is a it is a slightly unique sound that he manages to get out of all this as well, um, and does sort of change it a little bit depending on what's going on in the music at the time. But yeah, yeah, it's, and beyond that, actually, like, we haven't got to it yet. We may have got the impression, so you didn't notice before. Names like atheist, unquestionable presence. This doesn't sound like your typical death metal lyrical fodder either. No, no. It's all very um, kind of human experience, existential angst kind of... Um... Yeah, it really, really fits sort of the music of Atheist as opposed to, you know, like yeah, death and other bands at this point were still doing your sort of aggression and mutilation and that sort of thing. I can't think of a death metal band around this same point in time that weren't doing gore-based lyrics. Like yeah, Suffocation, yeah. Cannibal Corpse, Morbid Angel was still in their kind of gory phase. Mm, like this before mm. they went to... Um, their kind of weird phase with their lyric writing. Like, this was an incredibly forward-thinking band. Now, this is probably the point to start talking about their kind of legacy. Um, they were this forward-thinking. They were this actively different. Now, this led to a massive issue. So, early in 91, they were invited to tour Sweden with Candlemas. Because mm. Candlemas didn't have any bands that sounded like them at the time either. So... <laughs> Here goes the weirdest fucking tour ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be fucking amazing to see, but a really weird mix of bands. I think we mentioned this on a previous episode. It's an amazing quote for Leif Elding where he said Kelly was giving him shit saying, oh yeah, when we play together, we're going to blow you off the stage. <laughs> and this is the thing, because I've seen Atheist play a few times live. Their sound doesn't translate to live brilliantly mm. because it's so complex and technical. It gets lost in the mix sometimes. It does occasionally descend into a mess if the sound yeah. isn't that good. Whereas Candlemass <laughs> are just on the opposite end of the spectrum. So, you know, you've got these incredibly big, heavy riffs, and they'll sound good almost regardless of what sound system you put it through. And then they managed to return the favour. Candlemass toured the States with them. That tour mm. went pretty well. This was back when Roger was in the band. End of that tour, tragedy struck, and Atheists had to find a different way of doing things. Um, 
So, post-Unquestionable Presence, Cannibal Corpse invited them on tour with them and Gorguts in support. Mm. Now, this tour, and this will get into a, a big thing, um, so a lot of the research for this episode was from the book Mean Deviation, and um, Jeff Wagner posits a really interesting theory in there that I'll get to. Um, so, yeah, this tour, Cannibal Corpse obviously went down really well, biggest band mm. in death metal, mm. always have been pretty much. Yeah. Gorguts and Atheist had a terrible time in the store. People mm. hated them. They were too weird. So this is by the time Gorguts had got into their second album, their sound had changed to a slightly strange version of death metal. We'll get to Gorguts more later this episode. <laughs> um, yeah, and they just went down terribly. Um, they they weren't selling a lot of music. They weren't picking up a huge amount of fans. And before the next album, Steve Flynn, the drummer, quits. And so mm. Elements, they bring in a new, out, uh, new drummer... We've also got the new basis in the form of Tony Choi. And I just, I've never got on with Elements. I don't know mm. if you've ever heard the album. No, I haven't actually listened to that one. Elements is the one of their four that I just totally lost yeah. me. It's it's not dreadful or even particularly bad. It's got some really interesting moments. There's a particular like instrumental part mainly written by Tony that's absolutely brilliant. But just as a whole, it just doesn't have the power of the previous mm, two mm. and sounds like a completely different band. It doesn't, yeah, yeah. it doesn't seem to be drawing from the same influence pool. And very shortly after that, band broke up for many years just due to lack of interest. Um, in the intervening time, Kelly auditioned to join both Drowning Pool and Velvet Revolver as a vocalist. <laughs> was fortunately turned down from both. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a weird journey to have gone on from unquestionable presence and peace of time to... Drowning Pool or Velvet Revolver. Oh, yeah. oh fucking hell. It'd I wonder if it was post-bodies or not. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so um, the theory Jeff Wagner sort of brought up is there's loads of these super technical, super weird bands around early 90s, late 90s, that just and actually even earlier with Watchtower. Mm. And there seemed to be this constant running theme of they could never get more than two or three albums out. They could never yeah. get any momentum. They would do these amazing odd little gems that were just brilliant unique but no scene was ready for them they had nothing they had no one to tour with and thus they just fizzle out and it's like atheists have only reached a level of popularity many many years later yeah, like yeah it, it, so they reformed because there was this bubbling undercurrent where people were still buying their records and that people were getting more and more into them and suddenly had a massive influence and eventually around um i think it's about 2004 they, oh no, 2006, uh, Kelly and Steve reformed the, the band with a load of new new members, some who weren't even born when Peace of Time <laughs> came out, who, who were all like, the other guitarists that they got in were big fans of the band and the music. Oh, and, that's amazing, yeah. And suddenly had big crowds and people wanting to listen to their stuff. Eventually this resulted in them releasing a fourth album, Jupiter. It's a really, um, obviously, because they're a band that have reformed, it's divisive as fuck. I've, mm, mm. I've heard people slate it as like the worst thing they've ever heard. Personally, I quite like it. I yeah, actually yeah. had a lot of time for this album, and it might be one we'll put in, we're planning to do an episode of like underrated albums at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One I think that's one I want to get in there. Um, but yeah, so they come back to a bigger success than ever, and it, it's just really strange how this kind of thing goes. And we'll see this with the other bands we're covering. Gorguts and Cynic have this same arc of no interest, getting loads of shit for what they're doing, and then suddenly, yeah, yeah, yeah they pick right up. Comes back to become a big thing again, yeah. I've also just noticed in my notes, Tony apparently plays uh, bass by picking with 
all five digits on his hand. Which is, <laughs> is, if you're a bass player yeah, at all, that is just crazy. Just yeah. seems wrong, yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I mean, atheists are this sort of amazing, like, particularly at this point, this incredible flash in the pan of something which seems so far forwards of anything else that's come before it. And they almost seem to have got it done, perfected, before anyone else has even started. But hearing that sound perfectly in two albums sort of sounds so complex and unique, it's mm. spectacular. Because you say you look at a band like Opeth, who are doing something completely out of their comfort yeah. zone, trying something really weird and new. Essentially, it took them four albums to get that nailed down to yeah, a really yeah. five to get to Black Walls of Park, which people would see as their kind of peak. Unquestionable presence, I would say, even if atheists had continued, it seemed like the peak they were going to yeah, hit. It's yeah. just such a perfect album. I mean, maybe I'd argue Track Seven Brains is a little weak. Well, I think the interesting thing of a lot of the albums we're covering today, and we'll talk about this when each one is that they're very short albums. Like, there's not that. Mm. I mean, this this album's got eight songs on it. Thirteen um, minutes long. Presence. It's very short and like so to the point, and every minute of it is worth it. I think the song that really typifies this, actually, if you go back to Piece of Time, their first, uh, the second song in the first album. Uh, Unholy War has this thing where it's like crazy amounts of stuff happens and I always remember looking at CD playing right a minute's passed how is this many things how is this yeah, many yeah. direction changes and crazy like little weird things happen how do you squeeze that much into so little time yeah yeah it's it's quite incredible um, yeah. and then Atheist magic thing of making that actually work yeah because the thing I was going to get to as well was we're talking about tech death here so early tech death had this kind of weird jazzy style and often very much sacrifice heaviness for mm, mm. doing more interesting stuff. What we'll see is Tech Death completely evolves and moves into very weird areas. So the real next era of Tech Death, I would say, is completely ushered in by the second Necrophagus album, mm. Epitaph. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at Epitaph in comparison to this, yes, the jazziness is there. But it's all underpinned by this heavy chugging guitar, lots yeah, yeah. of double kicks. The sort of crazy sort of song structures which will break down into these weird jazzy interludes are sort of slightly gone. Mm. And yeah, the heaviness comes back to dominate it. And then as we'll see both, I think, with the Gorguts album and the Artificial Brain album that we look at, then some tech death goes in a completely different direction of this weird atmospheric technical noise. Yeah, yeah. But I've ne- I, I just haven't found anything that's quite gone back to this formula. Mm. Now, I don't know because it's too hard to do or just because people don't have the jazz influence quite as much. But It's entirely possible that it's out there and we've just missed it. So if you know something that's really cool that does this sort of thing, like let us know. Yeah, I'd highly, love to hear something like that. Yeah, I highly like to hear something more with this, this kind of bass playing yeah, more than anything. Yeah. Like uh, these are some of my favourite bass players in existence. Mm, mm. I think for this album we're going to go for the final track of the album. Probably the most catchy, still completely mad. Like, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's got some awesome, like, sort of fast, like, unsettling riffs on it, mm. uh, which really feels like sort of death metal, sort of really fast, aggressive riffing, just pushed in a really weird direction. And just the bass playing underneath is ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. every atheist song's like that, really. <laughs> this is and the psychic sword.
So the next album we're covering is um, Cynic's Focus from 1993 on Roadrunner Records, back when they were still good. Um, <laughs> this this is like a really obvious follow-on point from um, Atheist. So they were formed in, uh, Cynic were formed in 1987 and did a load of, like, demos have got a lot of interest in the uh, underground metal scene because they were death metal, but slightly up the technicality and something slightly odd was going on mm. with them. In nineteen ninety one, on the strength of these demos, Chuck recruited them to death to play uh, recruited the two members from uh Cynic, uh, Paul Masterville and Sean Reinhardt, and uh, Sean Reinhardt on drums, Paul Masterville on guitar, and recorded Death's Human. Mm. Now if you're aware of Death, Human is this incredible turning point in their career, often rated as their best album although nearly all of theirs are often rated as their best album. Um, And this move from Death's Spiritual Healing, released two years earlier, is a very... It's a straightforward death metal Mm, album. mm. Some oddities in there, but not really. Yeah, I think Human's really the beginnings of what Death would go on to become in doing really sort of slightly weird song structures, weird riffing, just adding this much more progressive element to the thing that they started with Scream Bloody Gore. And a lot of atmospheric elements as well. Mm, And, and mm. like... And Sean Reinhardt's drumming is particularly visible more than anything for adding the strange jazziness, like the, yeah, this yeah. influence of non-metal bands coming in there. And that's really what would take Death on to where they go with the next four albums. So Human is equally a masterpiece, very much well-deserving mm, to be mm. included the ones we're talking about today. But what we're getting to, as you probably know if you know anything about Death, their line's total revolving door. Yeah. So Sean and Paul were sent on their way quite soon after this. Um, and eventually we get to 1993's Focus, uh, the first and for a long time only album by Cynic. Um, the lineup's completed, so we've got Paul on vocals, guitars, and guitar synths. I'm not sure how those <laughs> work. Um, Jason Goble on guitar and guitar synth, and uh, Sean Malone on bass and Chapman stick, which mm. is like a bass that you have to play by tapping. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, complex instrument. He replaced Tony Choi, who was the main bass player through the uh, demo years. Again, we return to Scott Burns at Morris Sound for yep, yep. production, engineering, and mixing. Yeah, so this is two years after we've had both Human and Unquestionable Presence recorded and released from the same place. Because um, he recorded every death metal yeah, band in, yeah. in America. You really, really hear it in a lot of the drums as well, particularly between this Human and Unquestionable Presence. There's something about how he's done the drums at this point. And... Um, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting recording thing because like it at the time like this is more extreme than anything you've ever heard. Particularly with these bands, it's more weird than anything you've ever heard. So we should, before I want to get come back to the recording, mm, but mm. before we get into that, we should explain. So with atheists, we're saying you've never heard any like in the scene, you'd never heard anything like this. Cynic were like about to come along and blow that out of the water with the biggest like confusing gesture to fans <laughs> ever. So they started off as a relatively interesting death metal band. Mm. But in the intervening time before recording Focus and recording Human, um, Paul got into like yoga, meditation, spirituality. Um, also got really into jazz and classical, much like Sean the drummer. <laughs> Sean Malone, the bass player they recruit, isn't a guy who's known for death metal. Mm. He's a bass mm. teacher and author of music theory books. <laughs> like, so we've got some very weird influences coming in here. And what eventually is released 
cannot be described as death metal anymore. No, no, it's weird. It's an interesting counterpoint to Unquestionable Presence as well, because it's not it's not this jumping all over the place version of death metal. It's this slower, more controlled. It goes through all these different sort of emotional mm. beats within it. There's sort of harsh and sinister moments, and there's also these sort of like beautiful and triumphant moments that it has within it. And I think the sort of, you know, sort of new agey spirituality thing, you can feel that from this album in a super genuine way. Like, it has this transcendental quality to a lot of the things that are in this, with these sort of robotic-like vocals paired with your harsh vocals. There's something very, very different about this album. So the overall sound, and Rob's touched on it there, is essentially a core of kind of heavy guitar riffing mixed with this very freeform jazzy influence bass and drums like mm. the bass tone and the way the bass is played for this is just this beautiful you could isolate the bass tracks and it makes a brilliant listen yeah like, same with the drumming it's just very freeform very this very is out some, there yeah, there's like, some fantastic drum grooves on this like some beautiful use of toms and cymbals to make some really interesting grooves which is the sort of thing like I mean, even in Atheist, you were hearing it much less. Atheist had a lot of fills and weird drum grooves, but the use of the toms and the cymbals in a very, very jazzy way was really interesting and accentuated these sort of, like, guitar lead parts and lead bass playing, pretty much, which added to this, yeah, just sort of weird, more calm and yet still heavy approach which Cynic took. Yeah, so and the vocals are this really strange mix of you've got um, an ex-member of the band whose name I've completely lost um, doing some screen vocals, but mixing with that, uh, Paul is doing these bizarre like synth vocals. He's, he's yeah, yeah, using a vo- singing clean into a vocoder to make this crazy robot voice. Yeah, it sounds as like cybernetic vocals and stuff, which little plays off against these harsh vocals and they sort of interchange lines and stuff, which on paper sounds like it'd be dreadful. Cynic on paper sound like they should be shite, <laughs> but they're just not. Yeah. The music is in this brilliant place of it's never kind of self-indulgent. It's all about these kind of textures and atmosphere. Mm. There's a lot of... There's so many changing directions, um, not just in the writing of the music, but the way the guitar tones will completely change between yeah. songs. You'll, you'll go from acoustic guitar to heavy electric to these like synth guitar sounds and ele- electronic drum sounds. And they'll be mixed together. So you get electronic kit over like <laughs> heavy guitar and then like synth guitar over clean drumming and clean mm. bass playing. And it's... It's a very, very strange yeah, mix. Yeah, and, and all, again, melded together with a sort of purpose to it. Like, it all creates this atmosphere of the song, which works really well. And, um, you know, parts of this end up being horrendously catchy. More catchy than it has any right to be. Oh, and again, yeah. the Cynic song that most probably know is Vale of Maya, which, again, a um, slightly shittier band was named after, so it's now quite hard to Google. But, um, you know, like that song is horrendously catchy in the chorus despite the weirdness that's going on underneath these complex guitar and bass parts which somehow add together to make something that is just very easy to sing along to yes oh completely completely and like the whole thing is just a package that kind of lends itself to this the album artwork's done by robert venosa who's a very famous artist um who knew like dali and geiger Mm. like um and he's done most of the Cynic covers. And it's just this weird, weird, like, eye-melting gold yeah, structure yeah. image. I don't I can't explain it. Loads just of stuff have... is going on. There's all sorts of lines and colours and, yeah. And beyond that, another thing they have in common with Atheist, you've got the lyrical themes, song titles and so on. 
again building on the thing of atheists going totally away from the gore kind mm, of mm. Or, or satanism of most death metal into like just really strange stuff like veil of maya celestial vo- voyage textures uh i am but a wave these these do not sound like metal song titles like yeah yeah and it, particularly not death metal song titles there's oh no like, <laughs> you know it's exploring very very different themes you know more sort of cerebral and um I hesitate to say necessarily more intelligent, but like there's definitely, particularly with Atheist and Cynic, you know, there's a lot of interesting lyric writing that's going on here, exploring quite a lot of interesting concepts which metal hadn't really touched on, or at least death metal hadn't really touched on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, whether whether it's more intelligent or not, maybe, but at least Paul was doing a lot of research into it, doing yeah, getting yeah. into his yoga and meditation. It's not something I know anything about, but he certainly... Um, yeah, very honestly putting out there this very, very different take on things, which is you know exactly what you want in genres which are about extremity and breaking down boundaries and doing anything that's new. So now it's probably time to get into production. Now, the biggest failing of this album is the production of it. It's kind of... It, everything just sounds a bit weak. It, mm, it mm. has, like, almost... It's better than that, but it has the feel of a demo to an extent. Yeah, like, yeah. And the big reason for this is... Scott Burns had no idea what the fuck to do with this. Yeah, yeah. He hated recording this album. <laughs> and he, I think he was constantly butting heads with the members of the band. Mm. Like, he, he was, like, ringing up uh, Roadrunner just being like, Monty's going to freak out when he hears this. Like, you, you shouldn't be recording this. Like, and it's kind of funny as well, because watching Cannibal Corpse's um, documentary, Scott Burns is interviewed... And he goes on about, like, oh, I quit doing all this stuff because I got so sick of ubiquitous death metal bands doing the mm. same thing. It's like, yeah, but when you were thrown a left-field curveball, you didn't know what to do with yeah, it. You had yeah. no, it's like, you can't complain about getting the same shit over and over again when you're completely not open to yeah, it. Yeah, when, when you're given something that's very, very different, you don't really know what to do with it and don't, you know, sort of yeah, make yeah. something out of that. And and that that is a real issue with this album. Beyond that as well, we have an even more clear arc of what happened to Atheist with like the lag of interest. This album was slated by a lot of reviews. Mm. Like, Cynic did not pull in a big audience for this because it was only shown to death metal fans because it started the screen vocals. It still had a real heavy side yeah, to yeah. it. Cannibal Corpse fans weren't ready for this, <laughs> and, and and the band fizzled out very soon. Yeah, after like this it, point. it has such a totally different aesthetic to something like Cannibal Corpse, despite you know really technically being in the same genre. And I think that's one of the things that marks out technical death metal and these bands as something very different and definitely deserving of their own subgenre because this doesn't appeal to a fan of Cannibal Corpse. It has just a completely different aesthetic to the whole album, different themes and different sort of you know musical trends within it which just doesn't work for that type of death metal no completely and i think there is a bit more of a scene for this stuff now so mm. actually this leads us on to an interesting thing so both uh sean reinhardt and uh paul completely left music after doing this they well didn't leave music they left metal in general and actually went on for doing music for tv shows oh, you, right. you've probably come across a lot of their work they they did songs. Uh, they did a lot of backing music for Further Up from the Sun, Queer as Folk, right. a load of like really successful American yeah, yeah. TV shows. Now, around 2006, if you remember from the previous set when Atheist reformed, um, 
uh, Paul got a phone call from Kelly from Atheist. Now, don't know how much of this is like a cool, like little bit of the story, and there was probably way yeah, more yeah. to it than that. But Kelly had noticed this massive trend of their albums were picking up sales. They were picking up new fans. Like more and more people were discovering these old weird albums. So both Focus and Unquestionable Presence had gained this huge underground love long after the bands had fizzled out. Mm, now, Atheist mm. realised there was actually a scene to go back to. There was actually a waiting audience. Right, Paul was like, you've got to look back into this. You've got to reform and give this a go because um, there, there's actually a crowd. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, you will actually sell stuff. You will actually have audiences. Now, I don't know if that's the thing that really persuaded Paul to get back to it. Who knows? But it's very interesting that these albums are weird and interesting enough on their own merit that they picked up an audience with no one pushing them. Yeah. <laughs> and this is back in the days that this was pre, like, you know, it came out pre-internet. It's yeah, not yeah. It's not as if it was easy to find through, like, 98 or whatever. Mm, mm. Um, so, yeah, the, in 2006, Cynic also reformed and went on to record a load of stuff. So we've got two albums, uh, Trace and Air and Kindly Bent to Free Us, a load of EPs in the middle where they tried out weird stuff. Um, so the first reformed album, Traced in Air, was very much in the same vein as Focus, if a little more kind of toned down. Like, it's yeah. not quite as um, ever-changing. The songs mm, aren't mm. quite so... They don't move through so many guitar tones and so many textures. Yeah, yeah. But still a really interesting album. Again, actually much like Focus and Unquestionable Presence, they're all about half hour long. Mm, these are mm. short, to the point albums, normally about eight tracks. Yeah, which, which is amazing for the amount of sort of, uh, you know, as we were saying before, you know, within a minute you can go through so many changes in direction and changes in the feel of the music and different genres as well. It's mm. amazing you can fit so much of that into this tight number of songs within half an hour, pretty much. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, unfortunately... After getting back together, doing a load of interesting stuff, the core two, Sean and Paul, a middle mid tour seemed to have some kind of falling out, resulting in Sean run up, quitting the band completely, quitting the band and kind of calling a halt to Cynic himself. Paul disputes that Cynic had to have a halt call to it. Mm. They're now in this weird battle. I don't know whether Paul's going to go do something else. Like, so things are all completely up in the air as far as Cynic's. Um, Looking, which is a shame because it leaves it all on a bit of a bum note. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that, that's basically the, I think the main uh, talking points on this. I don't know. Is there anything else worth mentioning? Um, possibly the instrumental textures. Uh, yeah, like yeah. that. This is like an interesting point of the Focus album. Um, it's it's kind of. Um, if you know the song from Death's Humans, Cosmic Sea, it's like someone yeah, taking that to the next yeah. level. It's got a lot of... It's it's very different to the rest of the album because they didn't have to worry about vocals. They were able to just infinitely layer up guitars. Mm, like they had that, mm. Paul said in interviews, he had to stop himself adding more interesting guitar <laughs> parts. And actually a lot of it, especially the first two minutes... Almost sounds like mellower, like Opeth tracks. It's yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's definitely sort of elements of that weird sort of twisting, turning melodies that you'd see in bands like Opeth coming mm. in, and even parts where I thought you could see sort of that was sort of going on around this time a little bit later, the beginnings of the Melodeth scene that would come from this, with these very sort of melodic and yet heavy at the same time riffs, which Cynic 
could do incredibly well. Yeah, it seems to be like the cynic staple is the, and probably why they weren't ever that big if they ruled themselves out of everything by still being yeah, heavy yeah. while not being truly brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's cynic's focus. I this is I much like Unquestionable Presence. I think it's just now you have to own if you've mm, got any mm. interest in the the older death metal scene. It's it, it is a classic uh, production, notwithstanding. Like. And it's it's never been repeated. It is truly a unique artifact. Mm. So, I mean, we pretty much could have played anything off it, but we're going to go for the fifth track, I Am But A Wave 2.
Okay, so the next album that we're covering is by Gorguts, and this is Coloured Sands. So we've mentioned Gorguts a few times, and Gorguts began a long time before this album. This album is 2013. And um, Gorguts began... Uh, 89. Yeah, so Gorguts are much, much older than this, but I think Gorguts represent an interesting sort of change in at least part of technical death metal from these sort of weird jazz-influenced versions where you sort of sacrifice a little bit of the heaviness through to this almost, at least at this point, this weird atmospheric version of death metal, Mm. which takes so many more influences from other genres, so many more ideas and textures. And even like with a few of these bands, you get a lot of stuff coming in from other genres of metal, like the atmosphere from black metal and stuff like that, which creates this weird sort of soundscape, which while very technical and particularly, you know, like bass playing on this album is insane. Um, you have all of this very, very technical playing, and yet it all seems in service of an atmosphere rather than just in the pursuit of being the best musician. Um, so yeah, Gorguts have a very interesting history. It starts off with Considered Dead, which is like sort of just a slightly weird death metal album, really. So, so Luke Lemmy, the, who is the vocalist and guitarist, lyricist, main songwriter, he's the consistent throughout mm. this band. So, um he was hugely inspired by the band Death, especially their early stuff. That's what got him into playing guitar, what got him to form a band. And their first album is essentially a great tribute to early Death. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not pushing the envelope more than that, but it is an interesting listen. It's, it's Yeah, it's just a really solid piece of Death Metal. I was listening to it in sort of preparation for this. And it's, yeah, like it just sounds like a really nice imitation of Death. Mm. Um but then Luke LeMay is a really interesting guy because he's studied com- uh, sort of classical composition a lot, and you'll hear that halfway through this album. But uh, he's very, very good at constructing death metal songs as if they're compositions and not as just writing a death metal song. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we spoke about how atheists write songs in a really weird way. Um, but Luke LeMay writes them with this sense of dynamics and this sense of just how you construct, like, you know, an, an epic classic classical song, which just, like, no one else can do. Because yeah. the level of training required for that is beyond most people. Yeah, because he actually, he sort of, sort of, he's been to a music college, he's got a lot of formal education in classical composition, and he says he sees himself more as a composer than a guitarist. Mm. Like, his favourite part of the recording process is the arrangements of songs. He, yeah. Like, that's the thing he feels is really important. He said, like, he finds it actually often harder to do arrangements and actually necessarily flesh the whole thing out with riffs. Mm. So Gorgas go on this really interesting journey. So they're from Quebec, which, as you might know from a previous episode, uh, sort of similar area to Voivod. Yeah. So Luc Lemay, French-Canadian guy, formed quite late into the death metal scene. 89 things were well and truly got going. So they're always a bit behind the times and sort of in Quebec where there's not a great deal of anything. Voivod we mentioned were very much on their own. Yeah, yeah. Gorguts equally, there's a few other things around but a few very interesting things, but no huge scene. And then they start getting weird. So after Considered Dead, we get Erosion of Sanity. Still very much a a guess traditional death metal album, but they've just started adding strange elements. It's it started changing. Many people consider this the absolute highlight of their career. Um, it's still in that old death metal formula, hmm. but something's just off about it, and it results in it being this immensely memorable, immensely catchy, hmm. just really enjoyable album. 
Then they throw caution to the wind and Obscura comes out. Obscura is a fucking game changer of an album. Yeah, it's got... I mean, if you just look at something as simple as the vocals, there are this so much varied technique on this album. These, like, demented screens on it. And, you know, like, even past this, when we get back to Coloured Sands, like, the vocals sort of transition back to a more sort of traditional death metal feel. But on Obscura, sort of caution was thrown to the wind and anything that might work in any way or sense was just tried. Yeah, uh, the, the song structures are something of nightmare they're, mm. they're, everything is all over the place the guitar playing is bizarre I was watching a playthrough on the songs um, the other day where it's stuff like he will use like insane percussive techniques like bashing the lower strings rather than picking to make yeah, these that's weird I, and it's it's a lot of um, almost like sugar s playing with time signatures playing with mm. um, structures but all to create the most oppressive sound you've ever heard this album there is, it's very long, it's about 65 minutes, there's no breathing room. They, it is just upsetting and crushing and terrifying start to finish. Mm, and mm. it is a weird masterpiece, but kind of completely atonal, completely, like, it's like anti-melody. Yeah, like, yeah. like, just really everything working its way to not be catchy, to not be um, how you traditionally structure a yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, just this truly terrifying masterpiece. But a lot of people have issues with it because it's such a dry, overbearing sound. Mm, and I think mm. a lot, I think it alienated as many fans as it, it sort of pulled in. So they wrote a follow up to this um, uh, From Wisdom to Hate, equally brilliant album. But both this and Obscure alienated too many, too many fans, and the band soon fell apart. Mm, um, which is a trend. You know, you see with a lot of tech death, and we assume with both of the other bands we've talked about today, just they did something that just didn't really fit with the current scene or the current, you know, whatever mm-hmm. people were interested in, and it didn't gather enough support to keep the band itself going. Yeah, no, completely. And again, very much in the same. So, actually, this is really interesting. So, in the meantime, Lime's completely fallen apart. Luke, as he puts in his own words, put the guitar in the case and went into the woods and got really into woodworking for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading about that. So yeah. completely stopped playing and just decided his new art was building furniture. Mm, mm. Apparently he's very good at it. Like, <laughs> But due to this, this ongoing... I wonder if, if he composes furniture like he does death metal songs. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a really <laughs> uncomfortable chair. fucked up chair, yeah. Um, yeah, but again, much like Atheist and Cynic, Internet buzz went, and these albums picked up fans. Christ, we have a band now called Obscura in direct yeah, review yeah. to the album. <laughs> Very successful band. I think more albums than yeah, Obscura yeah. now. At least I think they're five, so they're the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in 2011, I believe, maybe 2012, they reformed. Um, mm. came, came back stronger than ever, um, and he brought in a new lineup of hyper talented musicians from a lot of different areas so we get um oh god i, I can't pronounce his surname kevin huffnagel huffnagel of, i think yeah yeah of dysrhythmia on lead guitar who is a, a very interesting lead guitarist he's mm. one of those guys you can recognize him by his solos because they are yeah. yeah very much something something unique to him he's got his own sound completely mm. To the point where you will hear on a... Was it a, a erosion of... Uh, no. 
what song was it we were listening to earlier? Enemies of Compassion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. there is a solo on this that defies logic. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like that Slayer Vader mad squealing solo taken to the nth degree with just sort of like noise, but it, yeah, in a way that just complements the riff that's playing at the time. But yeah, they get an absolute genius musician. We get uh, John Longstreth on drums, who's most famous for Origin, but don't judge him too harshly for this. His performance in this album is incredible. <laughs> and finally, uh, on bass guitar and uh, producer recording, mixing, mastering, mm. Colin Marston, who is the absolute genius musician behind Behold the Octopus, uh, also in Dysrhythmia, and Kralis, and mm. his, his solo project, Indrokafria? Indra... <laughs> Pronouncing the name is, yeah. makes about as much sense well, as and he's, you know, produced and recorded a huge number of really interesting mm. bands, uh, which we'll get onto with Artificial Brain after this. But yeah, he's a really, really talented guy, not only in playing, but in recording and mastering yeah, yeah. and mixing. So, like, he, yeah, on this, he's using both his, ba- his five-string bass and his war guitar, which is much like the Chapman stick used in the Cynic recording is a 10-string guitar that you can only play by tapping. It, it's, <laughs> if you know much about guitars, it's like strung in the opposite way to a guitar, where you get five strings going lower and lower going inwards, and then five strings going lower to higher going outwards. So you have the... Yeah, it's so really to the centre. Yeah, a very interesting instrument. Mm. I have no idea how you begin to learn to play this. <laughs> I think just being able to play that in itself um, yeah. shows you're a good musician. <laughs> so that leads us to Coloured Sands. Like they toured for a while, playing the old stuff. Eventually, got ready to record an album. Now, Rob, do you want to try and give a summary Do of what Colour of Sands best. sounds yeah. like? Yeah. So this is 2013 Seasons of Mist. They bring out um, Coloured Sands, and it's it's a really odd album. It's full of these huge, heavy, atonal riffs with bass playing which goes from backing up the heaviness through to pretty much lead playing by itself. And drums which are sort of all over the place, you know, jumping between blast beats to like weird little fills to just sort of like tom hits matching up with the heavy parts of the riff with these sort of traditional but not really traditional death metal vocals they're like traditional plus a little something else to them a little harsher a little like grislier than your standard like really deep death metal yeah luke definitely has a characteristic voice i'd Mm. say and it all builds into this weird like slightly oppressive sinister atmosphere of all of these crazy riffs arranged in this sort of like really satisfying way which i think Mm. traces you know just back to luke lemay being this you know trained man in composition and classical music he can do this amazing thing where he puts these riffs that are really quite odd riffs in this incredible order which helps create this real atmosphere around really technical playing which i think a really impressive thing that gorguts pretty much pioneered themselves the the sound they get there's, there's we'll get into i think more of the artificial brain we cover later um, the sound they get is very together for, for the amount of changes and everything. So Atheist mm. and Cynic never quite masters to the same level of the songs sound complete and the structure they sound right doing. Moving to these riffs never seems harsh or jagged. It always fits going to the next one. And off, like this album, very much different to the briefs two, about an hour long, most songs average about seven to eight minutes. Mm. They're mm. these big pieces, but... 
they flow perfectly. They also have that very strange thing of like, it's very hard to remember what happened in a Gorguts song. You'll enjoy it, you'll you'll get the atmosphere, you'll get the feeling, maybe yeah, be able to pick yeah. out an interesting part. But I can never tell you the structure of a song. You, you'll afterwards. listen to the entire album and you'll remember some riffs from it and that it was a like fascinating, like, awesome experience, incredibly heavy, incredibly atmospheric, incredibly technical, and yet it'll be really hard for you to recreate a song, like to think about, oh, did it go sort of uh, verse, chorus? Was there a middle eight? Who knows? Were there like five of them? Potentially. Yeah, um, yeah. They just ha- they have this structure which seems almost resistant to memory, and yet when you're listening to it, it's this perfect listening experience which just tracks exactly the mo- the emotions in the order that you need them to like create a compelling piece of music. And amazingly, they they have been doing this the whole career. So, uh, like, I don't know if I stress this point, but, like, between their albums, Luca May seems to pretty much recruit a new band each time. Mm. Like, now they've hit the final point where they actually seem to be consistent in this lineup. Um, unfortunately, John on drums does leave the band to be replaced for their um, follow-up. But Colin and Kevin seem to be these proper fixed members of it, especially, mm. I think, mean, Colin having the studio, that kind of yeah, yeah. adds something. Also, the way this album was written and the follow-up Pleiades Dust, which is EP we mentioned on the list of the year. Yeah, um, yeah. Half, one half-hour-long song. Really, there's a really great, and Phil showed me this, great bass playthrough by Colin Marston that's really worth looking up, because just looking what this album is like to play, or this song... Uh, is fascinating. The thing I've done quite interesting actually watching Colin Marston's playthrough, yeah, I watched the whole half hour, it was brilliant. <laughs> it is uh, really good, yeah. Is he scarcely uses the low string, which for mm. a, an extreme metal player, like. Almost uh, unheard of, yeah. yeah to, just, ma- many players can barely leave the lowest string. Mm, it's very. He has a very different way of playing bass, and I really enjoyed that. But yeah, the way this album was constructed, I found really fun. Um, if Luke comes up with the vague song structures and often adds, mm. uh, I think, yeah, he adds, adds program drums and will basically have the kind of overall structure of riffs. And then he sends it out to each musician, and each musician where it's all their own parts. Then they're combined. So you have Kevin writing his kind of more lead parts, yeah. but then with Colin doing his, his very um, almost lead bass. They then have to recombine. And they said they have this interesting like trade-off of like they never know what's going to happen when they yeah. write parts, like how they're going to interact. And sometimes it ends in disaster, mm, but often mm. it just builds something none of them on their own could have predicted could possibly or, have brought. Yeah, like this weird sort of collective process writing. Yeah, which which I find amazing. It, it must be so interesting to see this kind of evolve almost organically yeah, like, yeah. I don't know many bands that write like maybe a lot write like that but it just seemed very interesting yeah right? it seems like you'd require I mean just a degree of musical knowledge and a degree of knowledge of how your bandmates play and what sort of thing you're going for and the general sort of feel of what the album's going to be and what the songs are roughly going to be which yeah is really impressive now another thing that massively separates this album from a lot of tech depth so a lot of modern tech death, and it's, it's my big issue with the genre, massive gripe, is the Pro Tools mm. studio nightmare. They, the, you must be aware of it with some albums, and actually you get it all the way through into like yeah, a lot of modern yeah. metalcore or even modern thrash, where something just, it doesn't sound like a band playing in the slightest. It There's something like that sounds teeny and artificial about it, and not in a way, you know, which is sort of like this cybernetic dystopian horror story, in a way that just feels like 
there's not really the soul in it that you come to think of metal as having. A band like Rings of Saturn kind of typify mm. this sound, that mm. kind of ultra, ultra polished, but it just sounds like someone wrote it all in guitar play. It sounds yeah. like yeah. They, they just like put a really great guitar tone plugging into guitar pro mm. and mm. this popped out. It's just there's something unnatural about it, and I've always found a bit of a barrier to entry of that. And Gorguts have never sounded like this. And this album in particular like, is dirty and nasty. But I've, um, I've got a reason for this. Yeah. So Colin Marston, ultra-tech player in all these ultra-technical bands, he has a really interesting philosophy on recording where he's okay with mistakes. Hey, <sighs> Well, this is exactly the thing I found from Artificial Brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah, from, yeah. from his recording. So, yeah, with he, every band he works with. He he says he he doesn't make bands do too many takes if there's stuff that isn't quite perfect. You know, there's a bit where things slip ever so slightly out of time. Mm. He'll leave odd bits of that in, and it brings things an immensely human sound. It gives it. It just gives the record a bit of character. It doesn't feel like it's this perfect technical exercise executed by a computer. Because even the greatest musician and. With these sort of bands, we are talking about some of the greatest musicians in metal today. I think, I, like so, the, they make mistakes. The three bands we've covered feature three of my all-time favorite bass players, like mm. Tony Choice, mm. Sean Malone, Colin Marston. These guys are absolute innovators yeah. in that field, yeah. and, and that, that's not to underplay. Like a lot of these drummers, Steve Flynn, or yeah, like or Sean Reinhardt, cr- truly incredible drummers. Yeah, like, yeah. And and it's it's why they're pushing the boundaries so much because they've mastered their craft and worked out how to push things in a strange direction. Yeah, yeah. You 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 compare it to say something like Demi Lich from Finland, who are a good comparison point for later. Old band um, from like the very early nineties who tried playing technical but really couldn't. <laughs> but it results in an amazing thing. Yeah. These guys who didn't know their craft doing it, mm, and the difference mm. in sound between something like Demi Lich and something like Atheist is so immense because it's people accidentally pushing the boundaries yeah yeah people very knowingly people, pushing. people knowing exactly what they're doing and then knowing the bits of it that you can change and fuck around with to make something that's really interesting yeah yeah um as a, uh, we have missed a very important point from this album there is something incredibly strange happening um if you didn't know this coming in and i didn't so it caught me off guard yeah. like fuck Track five, the battle mm, for mm. Shamdow. I didn't know this either. So, <laughs> fucking five minute long piece of classical music. Yeah, halfway <laughs> through the album, you have this just amazing sort of like string quartet type thing, which Luke LeMay originally just composed on a piano and just put halfway through the album. You know, like this could be like the intro of a Sith Lord in Star Wars or something like that. It's this fantastic, really dynamic piece, and yet when you listen to it, you sort of think like. This is how a Gorgut song is. Mm, just, just this is done on different instruments. And it there's something about it which, sure, it feels out of place because all the instruments are slightly different, but the feel of the song is sort of the same. The dynamic ranges and stuff like that and the emotions and sort of textures that it goes through just feel like Gorgut's all over to me. Oh, yeah, completely, completely. Um, you've got a five-piece string section for it, two violins, viola, cello, and bass. And... Yeah, it's, it's just an amazing sound. It has brilliant riffs in it. It's quite it memorable. Does, yeah, yeah. One of the more memorable parts. Yeah. <laughs> the other really memorable song of this album is uh, Track 8, Absconders, which is a very similar thing to um, the song Nostalgia off of Obscura, where it's like somehow in all this chaos, 
they've come back to a catchy riff. Mm. But it's mm. not right. It shouldn't <laughs> be catchy, but it's actually really memorable. Yeah, it's sort of odd and atonal, and yet it really works. Like, this is this is the bit of... This and Battle Shamdo, the bit of the album you will get in your mm. head post-listening to it. And the other weird thing is that this song wasn't actually written by Luke LeMay. It was mainly written by Kevin um, Hafnagel, the guitarist. Who was so, nowhere near nostalgia, yeah, but yeah, there was that connection. And, and again, with um, the song Forgotten Arrows, which was written by Colin Marston, with these insane like bass slides on it, which are ridiculous. Mm. But it, it feels so consistent with the rest of the album. And if I, if I hadn't looked this up, I wouldn't know. Mm. I'd have no idea these were written by different people or they weren't all written by the same group it, or it, process. It's very clear, because I think both Kevin and Colin joined this band as fans. and mm. But they are very musically adept fans who knew how to add to their sound. Yeah. And, it's... and do it in such a way that adds to the album. Rather than just imitating it, it adds to it. It adds new elements and... Absconders is one of the best tracks on this album. It's I one think. of the best Gorgas tracks ever. Mm, it, mm. Like, I mean, that title's slightly broken by Pleiades Dust, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can a 33 minute song be your best yeah, song? Yeah. <laughs> is Crimson Edge of Sanity's best song, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's just very interesting, like, the direction they've taken that, and and just the way this band have a, like, a really lovely history. You can just see everything building. Mm. But, it's all been Luke's beast throughout. He's been the man in charge of it. But unlike something like Annihilator, he's let other people write songs. Yeah, he hasn't done this thing where he's exercised complete control. And, you know, obviously that's a really hard thing for an artist to do, to give up control of the thing that they started, the thing that they did. And remember with um, David Townsend's latest album, he's finally sort of allowed some of his sort of members to write part of the songs as well and contribute their ideas. And it's a, it's a hard thing to do if this is your thing. This is the thing you've put all your work and life into. Well, I think, like, Mellow Death fans around the world are furious that Mike Amott won't let um, <laughs> Jeff Loomis write for New Arch Enemy. Yeah, yeah. We all thought, oh, Jeff has joined, like, they might inject something back into the... No, yeah, no, he yeah. can just write solos. <laughs> and he has to write them like Arch Enemy solos, so it just sounds like more Arch Enemy. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, another weird thing about Coloured Sands. So um, Luke LeMay said that for this album, he was quite inspired by um, Opeth and Porcupine Trees, The Incident, mm. um, which is really interesting because like it sounds nothing like The Incident. But knowing both of these albums, I think you can tell parts of it. So I think the big thing with The Incident's influence. So The Incident was the final Porcupine Tree album, and it was meant to be one piece live. It was performed as this giant hour-long mm. track. And it's all meant to flow together. And I think that's the element he really took. He was like, yeah. oh, I can do metal in a way where it doesn't have to be these kind of concise bits. I can do it as a huge flying piece. And I think I've heard an interview since Kevin and Colin have sort of said he's got completely obsessed with this idea of yeah. like these... Like, well, heads for ladies' dust. Yeah, yeah, yeah obvious. Like, the next step, like, maybe we're going to get a 70-minute long song yeah. next. Like, <laughs> Who knows where they're going to go after this? Like, brilliantly, still going strong. And, mm, mm. and Atheists still seem to be going strong as well. It's just Cynic who kind of have fizzled out the mm. second time. Um, yeah, and actually really, more than anything, really uh, gaining a crowd of people in interested. Like, their album, uh, this, this album, Colored Sands, back in 2013... I saw it win a lot of very prominent albums of the yeah, years, yeah. which never would have happened with the first four albums. Yeah, exactly. There's suddenly a scene for this kind of off-kilter, maybe even avant-garde technical metal. Mm, mm. Um, 
funnily enough, and I have to call Bristol out on this, <laughs> when when uh, Gorgots first reformed, um, they weren't that famous because they didn't have coloured sands under their belt. They didn't have this big thing. I went to see him with, uh, what do you call them, Slam Death Band Amputated, oh, yeah. local Bristol favourites. With such wonderful tracks as Cunt Like a Sewer. Yeah. <laughs> um, we saw him with Morbid Angel as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It didn't get better. Yeah. Like, so, we had a big full crowd for Gorgas. So, oh, this is going to be really exciting. Amputated played their set and everyone left. Oh. So, yes, Bristol. If you were at the, if you were a Bristol person at the gig, feel ashamed of yourself. Because Gorgas are the most you incredible yeah, live you show. You left to one of the most interesting death metal bands that has ever existed. And I guarantee half those people are now big fans. Or like, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, no, I love Gorgas. Yeah, now like... that Coloured Sands has come out. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, it's difficult to undersell Coloured Sands. But... All of Gorguts's back catalogue is worth looking at because there's an infinite amount of interesting music. There. Yeah, I, th- I think say something like um, "From Wisdom to Hate" is actually quite a forgotten masterpiece, and mm. because it wasn't as radically different as Obscura, but actually might be a more condensed formula. But then again, I think Coloured Sands improves on it. And actually, really, I'd say now the start point for Gorguts is Coloured Sand and Pleiades Dust, like. Luke has kept pushing the formula. Mm, like, mm. Yeah, he just. There's something going on where he's just making things better and better. And much like tied back into uh, the cynic thing, he's taken the lyrical influence to really weird and wonderful mm, places. Mm. Um, Colored Sands is entirely about uh, the kind of Chinese Tibet. I, I don't call it a war, whatever. Yeah, whatever you yeah. call whatever happened there. But taken from an interesting place, if he's not making a political point, he's just putting the just kind of about that concept. Yeah, he's put a story out there about it. He's not necessarily putting a side out. Mm. I mean, the side is probably with Tibet. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't think China can be seen as great it's guys, the good in, this guys in this conflict. Yeah, but yeah, like it's and it's sort of he said in a lot of interviews like he wants people to go read more about this and hopes mm. to inspire people mm. to go in that direction. But then he's taking things lyrically in a completely different direction with Pleiades Dust, like. He's doing very interesting things with lyrics. But, as I mentioned before, he's from Quebec. English isn't his first language. Yeah, He's yeah. writing poetry in a second language. Yeah, which, a thing that like an awful lot of metal bands are incredibly good at. Because there's so many you know, European bands, particularly if you think about you know, black metal and stuff, and death metal from Scandinavia. And so many of these bands manage to do lyrics in languages which are not their first. And, okay, it doesn't always work. Incredible. But there are bands that do it really well yeah and I, you know you have to take your hat off to something like that that's really impressive because well, he's incredible he puts in these very well written lyrics and you like and he's a man who is regularly very amusing in interviews because he doesn't use S's on the end of words yeah. so you're regularly you're like well I wanted to do something for the Gorguts fan <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah it's just there's just enough happening on this that really does separate it from the crowd and mm, I, I think mm. you rightly deserved like top album 2013 oh yeah yeah um, yeah I mean, it's a bit of a long haul if you're not into it actually fuck it if you're not into it stop the podcast now because the fallout band <laughs> have got a lot in common we're going to play the catchiest track from this album Absconders in it's full nine minute glory mm. the other thing I would say quickly is Definitely give this album a shot on some really nice speakers mm. or headphones because there is so much to hear and appreciate. It's not that you won't like it if you listen to it on a slightly shoddier set, but there's so much you can hear on this. Every instrument's doing something odd. There's weird composition stuff going on. 
listen to it on a really nice set of speakers and you'll get an awesome experience out of it. I think Luke LeMay said that he wants the albums to be enjoyed less. He really wants people to put on headphones and sit down, close their eyes, no distractions, because mm. there is enough happening. There are really things to gather by focusing on it in repeat listens. Yeah, yeah definitely. So this is Abscondus.
So the final band that we'll be talking about today, we've mentioned them a couple of times before, are the New York sort of technical death metal band Artificial Brain and their first album from 2014, Labyrinth Constellation. So Artificial Brain firstly have some of the best album covers of any band. I've got the two of them here in front of me and yeah, they're just fantastic. So, um, yeah, we might as well go straight with the artwork (laughs) because I guess it's the most immediate thing. Um, so the first album is a Paolo Gradi cover. He's he's brilliant. If you've seen yeah, any of his work, it, it's a very strange style. It's like mm. um, it's almost not that well done. He's not very good at doing direct details. He just builds these amazingly cons- complex landscapes. Yeah, these huge sort of set pieces, like the artificial brain one, Labyrinth Constellation, there's this sort of war between these bug-like aliens and these Terminator-style aliens in this sort of drab, brown and grey environment with floating rocks and stuff. Uh, but it, like, there's so much atmosphere layered into his artwork. Yes, yeah. yeah. Paolo Gerardi is an absolute legend. If you look He's at something like yeah. uh, the cover he did for Vastum's second album, um, like that is, is just Patrick's like lust that's the name of it mm, like mm. that is, is another beautifully complex weird album it's just, it's just a really decent artist and with his own unique style the follow up album um, uh, Infrared, Infrared Horizon, Horizon yeah, yeah. Uh, album artwork by Adam Burke equally absolutely brilliant but he's got his own far more I'd say technically proficient style and far more atmospheric, mm. and like the the out the cover of a kind of like ruined artificial landscape with a very humanoid robot looking down at a mask or like head of some other robotic figure. Yeah, it's just an incredibly forlorn cover, mm. and mm. Yet again, this guy's work is just truly brilliant. And another one, yeah, that's really great. He did a Vector's Terminal Redo, which is mm. fantastic album cover. Um, but artificial brain. Um, I'd sort of describe them as cosmic sci-fi tech death weirdness. Yep. Um, Yeah, so they have this sort of... And, like, they've got a great list of influences, which I think really sort of sums up what they end up with as a final package. Um, So they're really influenced by bands like Demi Lich, Virus, Death Spell Omega, Gorguts, uh, Voivod, Mayhem, and Morbid Angel, amongst some others. So if you don't know any of the bands on that list, essentially they are all bands who are kind of pushing the envelope of extreme sound with taking things to a very uh, like kind of different level of throwing as many kind of upsetting melodies things that shouldn't Mm. work playing a lot with discordant riffs um and pushing pace to a ridiculous extent in a lot of cases Um, yeah there's and there's an awful lot of that sort of thing where you have these you know, like, riffs that remind me of things like Virus, things like Neurosis, even Mastodon and Death Spell Omega. You have these melodies, weird sort of, like, half-make-sense melodies over the top of these punishing, dissonant death metal riffs. Yeah, Along yeah. with these, like, fast, punishing drums. And again, like a lot of the bands we've been talking about, almost lead bass playing in a lot of parts, which just adds this other texture in this mosaic of odd melody which, and in the case of Artificial Brain in particular, gives us this, like, very science fiction-y depths of space atmosphere to it. And they have bits of this sort of sonic experimentation as well, where there's, like, at the end of some songs, I think Absorbing Black Ignition's got one of it, where it almost sounds like this sound of engines in deep space just sort of, like, echoing out. And it really gives you this feel of being lost in space or something like that. Yeah, so um, we should get into the the lineup of this band. Um... The main songwriter is Dan G- 
Garaligo um, on yeah. guitar, guitar, vocals. He's also a newer member of the probably far more well-known Revocation. Mm. Um, and then we got the band is is made up by um, John Lacanastro on guitar, Keith A. Abrahami on drums and backing vocals, Samuel Smith on bass and backing vocals, and then Will Smith on uh, lead vocals. Not, not the Will Smith you're thinking of, the biolet vocalist Will Smith, um, who's a fantastic frontman from watching a few of their um, oh, live videos. Yes. He, he's great, like, he's a force of will in this sort of thing. Um, <laughs> you didn't mean to do that. <laughs> oh shit, no, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, they also have some guest vocals. I'm just looking, yeah, so from a guy called um, Paolo. Pagantalan um, does some of the re- so every now and then you'll have these really high sort of like pterodactyl style the screams the best example I made a note of this is um, on the second album there's track 6 anchored to an inlay arc he intros the, the yeah, song with this crazy yeah. scream so yeah you've got these um, Will Smith's vocals are generally and I can definitely see the Demi Lich influence in this they're all that um, belching low yeah <laughs> I mean Demi Lich are the best example of this if you don't know them definitely look them up because they've got vocal. this like yeah, this is all like Battletoad style death metal vocals it's fantastic uh, I really love it and you can definitely see Will Smith in Artificial Brain has been influenced by this and you have mm. these super low like guttural like belching vocals which sort of just like sit there like this sort of fetid cloud over the top of this like intricate stuff that's going on and just like sort of ground the whole thing in a really really cool way so sound wise these guys have quite a lot in common with Gorguts but they have a more condensed probably slightly faster if slightly less technical slightly Mm. less out there than Gorguts' stuff like they say like the bass doesn't have quite that level of yeah, like yeah. really um, straying from the main riffs, and and the riffs don't have the quite so much. Although there is a lot of it, there is not that kind of constant the two guitars playing off each mm, other. Mm. There is more consistent kind of rhythms, but equally it has that nature of you can't remember exactly what happened in an artificial yeah, yeah. brain song. I have no idea how these guys reproduce this live. I wouldn't know how to remember every guitar exactly. part in one of these yeah, songs. Yeah. All of these weird melodies that like shift into each other and then back into this heavy riff that you somehow have to keep a mind of what exactly is going on. And they don't necessarily play around with time signatures quite as much as maybe Atheists or even sometimes Gorguts do. But just the like shifting that goes on within the structure of the riffs and the song itself is hard enough to keep pace with. And you'll remember these, like, particularly I remember, uh, I'm talking a lot about the second album, that's because I've got it recently and I'm really, really into it. But there's yeah. particularly, I mean, actually with Absorbed Black Ignition as well from the first album, you'll remember these snatches of riff and snatches of melody, which you think, that that's brilliant. And then you'll sort of like, you'll forget what happened in the rest of the song and you'll go back to it and again it will sort of surprise you in the directions that it takes throughout it. Again, it's one, it's definitely an album that benefits from multiple listens. On first listen, it is just a brutal pummeling. Like, mm, more mm. so, I'd say, than any of the albums we covered. This is yeah. where it gets into a kind of, that that strange mixed territory between brutal death metal and technical death metal. Mm, Actually, mm. the bit I really like, when those two combine tends to be the best of both <laughs> genres. Like, um, yeah, so so you, you get this kind of extreme heaviness, but a level of complexity, that, uh, but complexity in just throwing discordant bits of guitar mm. over it, um, over, like, kind of 
complex, very, very fast rhythm sections. And I think we were saying just before this that the thing that Artificial Brain do, which very few other bands can do, is they play Voivod chords. Yeah. They somehow managed to find these chords, you know, these piggy chords, which only he could manage, and they find something, if not the same, that's similar enough to give that, again, like Voivod, it gives that sort of, like, dystopian, spacey-type feel, and just adds this interesting element to everything that you hear. So if you haven't grasped it already, they're called Artificial Brain, the album's Labyrinth Constellation, it's sci-fi madness. <laughs> like, the, the lyrics are so heavily sci-fi influenced. Mm-hmm. I remember really seeing a really great article where they all recommended their favourite sci-fi oh, books. Oh, that's really cool, yeah. It was like, just really, like, fascinating. These guys have a real love for this kind of, mm. uh, this kind of lyrical fodder. And they make music that fits it. Because the album's yeah, written, yeah. Um, Dan puts together the sound and gives basically gives what a near completed song as I get the impression to the other three musicians who add their own little take to their own parts like yeah. make their own slight additions slight changes so then Will has to deal with completed songs and gets to write his sci-fi stories over the top of that yeah yeah which means Dan had to start with writing stuff that sounded futuristic sounded- and and it seems something that's so perfect for this sort of style of technical death metal because this sort of like this the sound experimentation these weird melodies there's something like sort of spaced out about them which really sort of brings it home with these technological sort of sci-fi song names and themes towards the lyrics and you know to the album art as well and it gives it this amazing unified image mm. and it doesn't have the problem which you know some bands who maybe focus on parts of ancient history have where there's just not enough stuff to make something interesting with you know science fiction and this sort of like the idea of the void of space there is so much stuff to work with that this never gets boring it's always weird it always sort of pushes you slightly to the edge of your seat where you're like i'm not really sure i understand what this is but i like it yeah yeah it just means there's a lot to dig into with the music like because you're not going to get the lyrics from listening. You, you do <laughs> yeah. have to read yeah. along. Uh, yeah. Will's vocals are well and truly impenetrable. Mm. Mm. Um, so the other interesting tie-in to Gorgas for this, recorded by Colin Marston, like I think we mentioned yeah. earlier. And he has the same thing he has with Gorgas, like great kind of leaving a few mistakes in. It's not yeah. perfect. Yeah. It's not It's not Pro Tools kind of sound. It, this, sounds very natural for a modern album yeah it gives it this fan- yeah it just gives it this sense of character and that's exactly what like they say about it as well I mean I think some of them the drummer was saying he does not like listening back to this because it's just you know he doesn't feel that he's putting enough a good enough performance but I don't know like both albums have a spectacular performances from all the musicians on it yeah yeah they, they, these guys are technically incredibly proficient and the real separation between this and three albums we've heard before there's no solos on this at all. It's very, yeah, yeah. Um, very free of self-indulgence. Like the songs are very short for a ten-track album, mm, mm. only forty-five minutes long. Which, yeah, like we, yeah. super to the point songs. I mean, a complex death metal song that comes in at three minutes long is a rarity. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a difficult thing to write to have those riffs that like to advance those riffs and change the pace and change things and not actually push yourself over four minutes is mm. quite something. The other band, I think these guys. I don't know if they, they know them at all, because uh, they kind of, I guess, formed a bit before them. These guys formed in 2011 mm. and just got their second album out in 2017. But I got a real Ulcerate vibe from this. I, I can definitely feel the Ulcerate from this, yeah. So Ulcerate, if you don't know, are a... I think they're from like New Zealand. But they're yeah, a right. super technical band who go 
massively for that kind of just like wall of chaos kind of sound. Mm. Like the guitarist plays entirely unnatural chords. Like it's just stuff you wouldn't go for. Over. And, and, yeah, the drummer is all over the place. These like ridiculous blast beats over almost anything and then these crazy fills and these really interesting grooves. And then the bass player and vocalist who just about manages to keep things together in something that's listenable. But into this really awesome wall of chaotic noise. Because also it have more of the Gorguts thing of going for the seven minute long song. But they also yeah. have the artificial brain thing. There's like no solos. There's no, there's no kind of room to breathe for the listener. Yeah. And I feel yeah. there's a real connection between these two. Don't know if they know each other. Don't know if there's any relevance between them. But yeah, it's just that. Kind yeah, of... there's definitely a sort of motif that's carried by both of these bands. It is, it's that modern tech death because there's quite a few bands doing this. Um, the one whose name I can't say, uh, Kephililist. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know the one you mean. Yeah, Kethil- so the, yeah. I think the name is spelled C H E apostrophe I L I S T. Yeah, yeah. But the, an interesting uh, yes. Canadian band yeah. um, who equally have that kind of. Depto Voivod and Demi Lich mm. doing a kind of very just like anti melody horrible noise that yeah, is yeah. somehow incredibly compelling. Mm. So I mean um definitely like check out Labyrinth Constellation because it's I think it's the best intro to this sort of like tech death that's now becoming a big thing. Um but also like the album this year, Infrared Horizon quite likely to make top 10 list I reckon it's I, a really I'd really good album I'd be very surprised they're, they're kind of almost hilariously in the same vein as each other there's so many yeah. kind of consistent things like obviously the musicians have just stepped up these are young musicians you get that really cool thing that these guys are clearly just learning and getting better and better mm. but they're both 10 tracks long albums are both about the same length they both have a weird thing of track 9 on both albums, sounds like it's the ending. <laughs> and then the last track comes in. They, they really build up to a yeah, false yeah. end and then, like. And they give you another track, yeah. Yeah, it's. it's uh, and the, the, thing that's, the thing that they've said is uh, an interview we both listened to actually on the Metal Insight podcast, which uh, was a really cool resource mm. for this, um, was that they felt on the first album, so obviously they've stepped up their technical ability for this second one, but on the first one, it sort of felt, I don't know, in a way less focused, but also that they sort of gave more room for the melodies in the song to sort of breathe and expand outwards. Um, which, yeah, I definitely think is a really cool thing about this first album. Mm. And, like, not a bad thing, just a difference between this and the second is the second is a bit more punishing and to the point. Like, it will give you these melodies and then it will just sort of drop away and it will move into something else. It won't always just allow these things to continue. Um, but both of these albums are totally worth getting. A really, really interesting window into what's going on in Tech Def these days. And I think they're just one of those bands that are doing, like, a very new band doing something new, and it's always great to support these things mm. as mm. they're building momentum. Like, I don't think these Definitely. guys have had, like, a UK tour yet or anything No, like no, that. I mean, if, if they do, I'd love to go and catch them. It'd be fantastic. They do look like a really good live show. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, like, Gorgas bring them out and support. I, That'd be a good tour. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> and I can barely imagine... I mean, I've seen both of these bands play live on YouTube, but I can barely imagine how either of them even bring this stuff together, even having seen it done. It is that thing that makes you despair as a musician, like, mm. I'm never going to be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that pretty much covers artificial brain. I yeah. guarantee there'll be a band we hear from again on this podcast. Like, yeah, definitely. I'm very much looking forward to what they do in the future, and I think they, they are building up to the next album as we speak. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think that leaves us with um, we're going to play Absorbing Black Ignition. Yeah, so plugs. 
Plugs, yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, if you have anything to say, anything at all, you think we horribly mispronounced a band member's name or we didn't do an album justice or you like something uh, you can contact us at on Twitter at just Breakfast Metal at, at Breakfast Metal at yeah. Breakfast Metal um, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com yeah um, leave us a review on iTunes that'd be lovely yeah just, more than anything just just get in touch get in touch with our like stuff you want to cover like yeah there's there's loads we'd love to dig into. Like this uh, this episode in particular was really fun to research. Mm, this is a great one. So if, there, if there's a genre we have we've completely missed so far, um, oh god, it's power metal so far. <laughs> I don't want to do that episode. <laughs> no, but we can find the good things in that. We'll, but yeah, we'll, we'll find some power metal. <laughs> any any suggestions of anything other albums that we've missed or something like that? Go ahead. You found a cool band which sort of sounds like one of these, or just sounds like something mm. you might be interested in. Send it our way. That'd be awesome. I think there's a growing scene of this stuff, so guaranteed we've missed some really interesting influences yeah, on definitely. this episode. And it, like Tech Death, something I'd love to get more in depth into mm, mm. that modern kind of complex atmospheric Tech Death. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of like the Gorguts inspired scene, which is now burgeoning into so many interesting bands taking their own spin on it, just like Artificial Brain. And there'll be yeah, yeah. loads of others who are doing this cool stuff. Yeah, so as Rob said, we're going to leave you with Absorbing Black Ignition. <laughs>